Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we are here 2023 with the first podcast of the year. We're starting off the Australian Open swing with the former Australian Open champ. But first, let's take a preview about what we think is going to happen this year. On the women's side, I personally think Jessica Pagula over the past 60 to 90 days has been the best player in tennis. I think this will be the year where she squeaks out a grand slam. Probably won't happen on clay, but she's got three chances. I think she plays well in Australia. Her game suits grass. And again, an American playing at the U.S. Open. You know, if she's healthy all year, this could be her year to potentially get a grand slam champion. On the men's side, we see Novak Djokovic being able to play Australian Open. And I think this is the year where he pulls away from Rafa and Federer and wins at least two of the four majors this year. And we start off with a South African, Australia, two-time Australian Open champion in 1981 and 1982, back when the Australian Open was played on grass, Johan Creek. We talked extensively about what it was like playing in that, in that era, why he chose to be raised on clay court, tennis, but skipped the French Open for five consecutive years. We talk about growing tennis in Africa and being a tennis dad now with his own academy and two young stars coming up in tennis. Take a listen. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. This is the podcast number one of 2023. And we're getting ready for the Australian Open. And we've got a guest who probably is one of the best guests to kick us off for the Australian Open, Johan Creek, 1981 and 82 Australian Open champion, back when Australian Open was on grass, right? Uh, a legend from South Africa, uh, one of the great guys on the tour, wins over Johnny McEnroe, um, dad to two rising stars. Johan, thanks for, thanks for joining the show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, Kamal. Nice to meet you. So it's Australian Open time. And, you know, back in the day, people didn't want to make the trek all the way to Australia. So tell me what that was like in 81, 82 when you won, back when it was on grass. I mean, I don't even know if most people you know, in my era remember the day. I was born in 80. So I don't think right. I knew the Australian Open was ever a grass court event. Tell me about those times. Yeah, it was a, you know, it was a golden era of tennis with the Connors, Borg, McEnroe, Ash, and Nastasi era. I mean, I played with basically almost four generations of players, uh, four different types of rackets. I played with <laughs> white balls at Wimbledon, then I switched it to yellow balls in 84. I mean, we played so many things. What people don't realize is back in the 70s that three of the majors were played on grass. Mm. You had the Australian Open, mm -hmm. and you had Wimbledon. And they had the U.S. Open on, on grass at Forest mm -hmm. Hills. 
Yeah. And the only one was on clay. Uh, there was nothing on hard courts. Now you have, you know, obviously Roland Garros is on red clay and you got Wimbledon, there's still grass, but then you have the Australian and the US Open on hard courts. So it's changed quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when, when I played in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, most of my career was in the 80s uh, successfully. We, we um, the Australian Open was always the last tournament of the year. And, you know, it didn't have the, it didn't have the cachet, didn't have the prize money or any of that stuff, even though it was a major, so to speak, on paper, it didn't have the financial uh, uh, workings like you have with the US Open or Wimbledon or, or even the French Open. So it was, uh, it was a very different, uh, a different era for the, for the Masters and then, uh, I mean, for the major tournaments. So, but I, I went down there in my first two times. I, uh, I didn't qualify. I was already on the tour, obviously, in 81, 82. I was already top 10 in the world. But I, uh, I played very well and, you know, just uh, played Steve Denton in the finals twice and uh, beat him in both, both finals. The first, <laughs> first year was a 7-6 and the fourth was a tough one. And in the second year, I played him in straight sets. It was, uh, it was a little bit easier. But, uh, yeah, it was a great, uh, a great sight and then a really good, uh, a good, good run for me. Now, when did that change? Because right now, I, I see the Australian Open as probably the most forward of the slams. They were like the first ones to have the LED boards all around the bowl of the court. You know, and the players initially thought it was annoying because you serve a ball, it hit the LED board before the ball kid gets a hand on it, and the ball bounces back in the court. Now right. the LED board is used to create more advertising, right, to create more sort of digital and imagery and color to the court. And so to modernize it, and even Australian Open is probably one of the first to advertise, publicly advertise, prize money increase. I mean, very public about 3% increase from last year. You know what I mean? So when did that sort of shift where it was sort of the, the, the last tour of the year to now being the first tour of the year and being... Yeah, very, yeah very interesting. I mean, the, the old Wimbledon, I mean, sorry, the old US uh, the Australian Open was played at Kuyong, which is the very famous old, Rod Laver, Ken Roswell era tournament that was played there, right on the Yarra River. It's not that far from where it is today. Yeah, the new site, but uh, you know, it, it was an old club, and uh, you know, to, to make room for the new and improved version, they had to they had to switch sites. So they went to uh, Flinders Park, and then uh, you know, the I think the Australian Open switched in '86, maybe. Mm. I was starting to have some issues with my elbow, and I was injured a little bit, so I I played there against Edberg, lost to him. And I think he won it that year, but nevertheless, um, and I think 86, 87, they changed it over to hard courts and then the new facility. And obviously over the last number of years, a uh, couple of decades, they've really, I mean, uh, improved that, that site and improved the tournament. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, rightfully so, the Australian Open has become an iconic Grand Slam event. And I just think it's, it's really probably the most fun one because it's obviously played uh, in a very fun city of Melbourne very much a European feeling city and the trams and all that stuff. Um, I always had a great time in Australia, played very well there over the years. And, um, you know, just uh, it was a great era to, to see it improve like that. But uh, it's a fantastic tournament now. Very proud to see that the South African runs it for the last number of years. Uh, yeah. Craig had a Champagne, Illinois. He was the coach there in college. He, uh, he was working with Kevin Anderson, also from South Africa. I guess he recruited him. Yeah. So Craig has done a magnificent job for the, the, the state of Victoria. And, you know, he's, uh, he's an iconic tennis operator. Oh, 100%. So I'm from Chicago. So Craig Tiley is an Illinois legend, right? Coaching there at U of I. Uh, yeah. You know, brought Kevin Anderson over and 
you know, Kevin Anderson, as we know, got to the 2017 U.S. Open final. Um, Samuel Sloan won the U.S. Open that year. So that was a, a great run. And Craig, and I mean, from the per diem, from the food, from the salon at the place. I mean, it just is a first class event. So it's kind of funny. I, you know, I don't know if people really recognize it. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to digress from this subject matter. But I'm kind of proud of the South Africans have done a major job on tennis since the 60s. Let me give you an example. You know, Craig Tiley is the modern day uh, guru for Grand Slam events and has obviously built up a fantastic tournament with the Australian Open. But there was another gentleman by the name of Owen Williams, who was South African born. He was a pro player in the 60s. Uh, he's now probably deep into his 80s. Um, I used to have, uh, when I played the South African Open back in the early 80s and 80s, it was a difficult time because it was apartheid era. I was blackballed, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I try to support South African tennis. And uh, I ended up winning the tournament in 1983 when Owen Williams was a tournament director in Johannesburg. What people don't re realize is that the South African Open was the fifth oldest tournament in the world after the four majors. And so when South Africa switched uh, governments in 93, within a couple of years, uh, the South African Open had completely disappeared. Uh, the whole South African Tennis Union was running to the ground, was bankrupt. And so in order to pay off the bills in South Africa, they sold the date to a tournament in Barcelona. I think it was Madrid. And so Owen Williams ran the South African Open from the early 60s. And by the late 60s, he decided that there may be a different way to make these tournaments more successful, more viable, more prizeman. And Owen is the grandfather or the, 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 the founder of the sponsor tent and the box seats around Santa Courts. He was the original guy that started it, South African. Huh. And so by the late 80s, uh, sorry, late 60s, the uh, Forest Hills USDA folks said, you know, there's some guy down in South Africa who's doing an amazing job at taking a big tournament and making it extremely successful financially. And we need to talk to this guy. <laughs> and uh, so if you want to read about this, this era of, the box seats and the sponsor tents and how professional tennis is where it is today. There's a couple of people that are very key players. One is Lamar Hunt that will never get the accolades that he deserves um, from Dallas, Texas, who started WC Tour, mm -hmm. as well as this guy, Owen Williams, who was a South African businessman, tennis, former tennis pro, who has a very, very keen sense of how to make money with tennis. And he started the box seats. So the USDA hired him to run Forest Deals at the US Open, at Forest Deals and at the Flushing Meadows. So uh, I don't think he was there at Flushing Meadows, but he was at Forest Deals for about four or five years, then went back to South Africa. And that's why the US Open is today one of the richest tournaments, not because of just him, but just these ideas have been flourished and you know become bigger and bigger. As the, And now everybody around the world, I mean, if you don't have sponsors with box seats and sponsor tents and dinners and lunches and sponsor parties and all that stuff, you know, we would not see the increases in prize money. Yeah. So he was really kind of the, the founder of bringing big corporations to tennis. Mm. Interesting yeah. story. He yeah. wrote a book called, he wrote a book called ahead of the game. You should read it. Fascinating. Yeah. And you know, another famous South African, Alana Kloss. Yeah. Who, yeah. Alana's in Chicago. Yeah. Alana, Chicago, you know, New York, you know, split time, Chicago, New York, but, uh, spouse to Billy, but another good tennis mind, uh, soft-spoken, but a shark inside, 
right? Great business person, you know, the force behind Billy and keeps Billy working, keeps the sponsorship coming. But you're right. I mean, South Africans have had uh, a big, big, big influence on tennis. Yeah, I think it's going to continue. I have some interest, interesting plans and, uh, you know, um, I'm pretty instinctive about what I've done all my life in tennis. You know, I, I come from a farming community of 500 people and we have two cement courts in that town and that's how I learned to play tennis. Mm. And I uh, was discovered when I was 10, like, uh, you know, this kid is not just going to be a great rugby player, but he should really play tennis because he's talented. So that's how I got to be a boarding school student in Pretoria. Uh, in the Afrikaans High Boys High School, which is the Afrikaans school, but Elon Musk went to the school on the other side of the street. So uh, kind of an interesting tidbit. But, um, you know, Africa has been left in the dust for too many decades. Yes. yes. And I have some ideas how to get things going again. Yeah. So I'm on a, I'm on a war path to get tennis back in Africa and really, really make a difference for, uh, for the legacy of junior tennis and just basic tennis tournaments. There are no South Africa. There are no ATP or WTA pro tournaments south of the Sahara Desert. That leaves 1.1 billion people without that opportunity. Like I had to go and watch the South African Open and meet Bjorn Borg when he was 16 and a half years old, coming out to play his first pro tournaments. He went to South Africa. I was in high school. I was 13 and a half years old, and I went to. I was invited to go and watch the tournament. Arthur Ashe was there. Jimmy Connors. All these guys. And I just knew at age 13 and a half, that's what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. So it's really a, it's a sad state of affairs that things have over the decades uh, been neglected and, so, and, and Africa has been left uh, uh, to fend for itself in whatever tournaments and junior events they could run up. But we really tr- truly need some, uh, some, new, some new ideas and some new blood to come in there and, uh, and pump tennis in, in, in a continent that has been neglected, unfortunately. Yeah, and when you think about African tennis now, we see all we hear about is people leaving. We hear Africans going to France, going to Spain, right? Just sort of being extracted, right? Yeah. It's, you know, being told that you can't develop in the continent. You got to right. go elsewhere um, to get good, right? And I, and then what happens is, you know, you lose, they lose their heritage. They spend so much time in France or Paris or whatever. Then the coaches take them and you know, make them seem like they discovered them, right? You know what I mean? And not give any credit to how good they were before you took them out of the, out of their native land. I would love to change that. I think we have the opportunity, especially in South Africa and maybe broader spectrum, Southern Africa, and start building on a, on a, on a platform by which we think we can, uh, we can get some very powerful people behind us to make this happen. Uh, bring professional tournaments back, just like we had in South Africa back in the day. It was the fifth oldest tournament in the world, started in the late 1800s. Um, and really, really re- revive it uh, and do something so unbelievable that the rest of the world is going to look at us and go, wow, we didn't know that Africa could do this. And, uh, you know, I've lived most of my adult life in America. I'm a South African at heart. I've been a citizen, since, a U.S. citizen since 1982. But I think uh, myself and some very interesting people are very, very, very serious about this effort. And uh, that goes to the highest level of both, of both men and women tennis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I say the same thing. Like in Chicago, we try to take a, a cradle to grave approach. If you cannot, you know, people want to play basketball, but they can buy a ticket to a Bulls game. Right. But if you cannot get close to pro tennis, you never believe that you can do it. Right. You never yeah. fall in love with it. You know what I mean? And so, you Absolutely. Know, Absolutely. You know, just, I mean, I meet so many people on tour that were ball kids from Roger Federer. 
right? Or a ball kid for somebody else. And it's like a lot of careers just start with that, just being, have an opportunity to be a ball kid or to play on a court next to a professional like they do in Czech Republic, right? And, yeah. you know, in America, we've got to, well, in America, South Africa, you got to keep these tournaments alive so that kids sort of see it to be it. Uh, so we're trying to do the same thing in Chicago. Yeah, no, I mean, South Africa has got great tennis programming for juniors. I mean, they have academies there. They got ITF tournaments. There's a lot of, there's a ton of ITF stuff in Southern Africa. The problem is once the kids get to 16, you know, 15, 16 years old, you know, they have to leave. They have to go to Europe. They have to go to America. They got to be exposed to that higher echelon. It's a very different time now than when I was uh, even a young junior and upcoming. I was just absolutely unbelievably fortunate that my, my foundation coach in Pretoria was this guy, Ian Cunningham. He's now passed away some years ago, but Ian took me under his wing and I, he became sort of my second dad. You know, I was in high school, I was in boarding school. There's no such thing as an online school, uh, you know, that you can do things and you play your sport and you can do your education. There's nothing like that. It was like either you do your education in sports secondary, right? Right. But I just went to the schoolmaster one day and I said, at 17, I said, I'm not going to finish my final year in high school. I'm going to go play professional tennis. Guy looked at me in stunned disbelief and said, can you make even money out of that? <laughs> and I just didn't know what to say because I've never been on a tour, so I didn't know how much money the guys would make. Right. And he, I said, well, I'm going to try, I guess. you know. And he says, your parents would like to, for you to go? I said, yeah, they they okay. They, they would like to go. So my coach had emigrated to Austria, of all places. Mm cold place and uh, i left the heat of summer in february of 78 uh, 76 and i ended up uh, flying to zurich switzerland they picked me up and uh, i lived in austria for three years luckily just plain blind luck my coach had got a job there from south africa to emigrate to austria got a job at a club and i learned to play on red clay and that's really how my lucky stars turned out to be you know a, a very very fortunate facility situation because i could now play on on red clay and I played indoors and I got to play tournaments in France and England and Germany and, you know, just traveled around by train a lot. So easy once you're in Europe to compete. No, it, that's, why most, that's why there's so many good players out of Europe. I think it's because the countries are so close together. So there's the competition is amazing. Yeah. The opportunities there are way, way more uh, conducive to have a, a bunch of people play well because it's, it's easy travel. It's close enough, tons of tournament, tons of different. I love the way the French actually go about their program because it's sort of more of a uh, don't, don't, don't stifle the, the talent, you know, so that they, the, the, you, you see the French, they play very different from the, from the Spanish, right? The Spanish are all pretty much the same. It's yeah. kind of like you got to get the mold from Roger, uh, from, uh, from right. Nadal, right? Right, right. Whereas the French are very, uh, very rainbowish, you know, they, uh, they let people kind of develop in their own way and the coaches are very well supported they got a great system in france i think and uh you know but they've had over the years tremendous amount of players coming out of france as well oh yeah france italy now is is, is coming along it's just amazing introducing coco golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power on the court the multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the coco cg1 at newbalance.com so what i find ironic is that you trained 
a lot on clay in Austria. Yeah. So why did you not play the French Open from 1980 to 1985? You know, that's a very good question. I, um, <laughs> I mean, you I, play all three slams except that one. I, I just, you know, the first time I played on clay was 17 years old. And so I just didn't feel the push. I, I just didn't feel that comfortable on it. And so I didn't play the French until 1986. Uh, I decided, okay, you know, my then wife wanted to go shopping in Paris and I'm having been <laughs> in Paris. And I, there was a big joke in, a, in, a, in Le Figaro or something because I did so well. I got to the semis. I said, you know what? My wife's going to go shopping and she wants to see Paris. And we did the whole nine yards, the Eiffel Tower. We did all that. And I said, you know what? People think I can't play in this. <laughs> you're running from it. They think, you're, they think you're doing a Roger Federer, right? Where you like take a little vacation, start your grass court season early. I mean, you know, like I was like, yeah. I was looking at your run. I was like, what is the deal? You play all four slams, final late in all of them, or play the other three. Not like you were injured, right? It no. was like you just chose not to play the French, like Roger. Well, back then it was just sort of weird. It's just like I, I didn't feel like I... I could stay in Europe that long, even though at that time I was living in Florida already. I lived in Naples, which is funny. I'm here in Naples today. Um, <clears throat> so I just, you know, I was one of those players, uh, you know, when I give it my all, I play three, four weeks in a row. I couldn't stand play, you know, uh, maybe Hamburg or then warm up for uh, or Rome and then go to the French and then have a week off practice. It was just for me too long in, in Europe. I just got, got brain dead. So I, I said, you know what, I've got to come back and, and, and prepare because I had already done so well on grass. And I, I think that I need to prepare for the grass court season. I did fairly well at Wimbledon. I got to the quarters twice and a couple of 16s, but I never really quite. I felt like the weather and, and, and Wimbledon really affected my tennis too much. Uh, <laughs> one day it rains. And, you know, my final year is 1993. I qualified, I think, 16 years apart. For the first time I, pray, I played Wimbledon, I qualified. And then I qualified when I was... Injured, I had three surgeries. I was coming back, I was 36 years old. I qualified and lost to Javier Sanchez in the first round of Wimbledon. I played five days on one match. I mean, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> the weather just the weather just wrecked us. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and then in 86, I just thought, you know what? I'm gonna really give it a shot. I'm gonna really try very hard at the French. I practiced really hard in Florida uh in the summer in, in, in early may and uh went to the went to the french open and i played free i i, I had no expectations nobody thought i was going to do well and uh, i beat some good players on clay mm. including vilas on center court in the quarters uh. and i beat him three six seven six seven six seven six four four hours 48 minutes and i was dead I was dead. I mean, I had to play Lendl uh, two days later. I could not, I couldn't even get out of bed. I should, honestly, they looked at me and they go, eh, I think you should just default. I said, nobody defaults in the semis of a slam. Are you kidding me? No. You know, I mean, no way. if you can crawl on the court, you play. But it was it's so funny that two days before I played Villas, it was super hot. It was like in the 90s in France. It was ridiculous. And I love the heat. So I played well. And uh, then I had like a day off. I literally just, I stayed in bed. I was dead. I was completely spent. But I had a bunch of five set matches before that as well. So it wasn't just that one match. But then, uh, then I played Landl and I just, it was 50 degrees. It was so cold. It was the first time ever. And it was windy and snotty rain, a little bit of rain. And they made us play. And it was so cold that the tournament, for the first time in the history of the Grand Slams, they allowed us to play with a full track suit on. 
Mm. So I played, I mean, I, I just couldn't play. I was just dead. So uh, Lendl had a basic, basic easy three-set walkover, and then he beat Burnforce in the finals. Now, you were there during that golden era, and I remember back in 1984, 1982, John McEnroe went 81-4. and four. Now, you, I know you got some wins over Johnny Mack. What was yeah. that year like? We almost saw a year like that last year with Iga Swiatek, right? Yeah. Where she just was on a run, right? Uh, I don't know if she won, what, 34, 35 matches in a row or something like that. But what was that year like with Johnny Mack on that run, only losing four matches? I mean, you know, obviously, <clears throat> John was a very, very talented, unusually talented player that came into an era where there were some really tough players and the guys were incredibly vivid characters, not just on the tennis court, but just the way that they are as people, you know. And uh, when uh, I, I played Mac in, uh, in 82, I played him a couple of times. Um, in 82, I beat him in the finals of Memphis in the U.S. National Indoor Championships, which was kind of funny because I had just won I think early January, I won my 82 uh, Australian Open, and these guys were not there. So the newspapers were like, oh, well, Crick is coming to Memphis, and McEnroe is going to be there, Connors is going to be there. I don't think he's in the same league as these guys, and I just sort of like used that as a bit of fuel. And uh, I got Mac, I got, I got to play uh, John McEnroe in the finals in 82 in Memphis, and a uh, really great TV match, and uh, I beat him 6-4 in a third. And I just, I was really playing good tennis. And uh, I thought, you know, um, I've arrived. I mean, I can play with these guys anytime I want. You know, it's just a matter of how you conduct yourself and how you practice and how you, 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 you feel how you get on the, on the court with them. And, um, you know, so I, I got him a couple of other times in San Francisco. I played some really great matches. I, I pretty much beat John mostly on uh, indoor, on indoor forest carpet, which is funny. That's kind of his best surface. But I always felt like his best surface was Wimbledon because, that lefty swing serve back in those days was so low and so quick and it's so hard to pass him, you know, uh, with his serve and volley tactic stuff. Um, he was nearly unbeatable at some of these tournaments. And he obviously showed in 84 that he was at the, at the absolute prime of his career. But I'm, uh, you know, in tennis, maybe more so then, back then than maybe today. Um, there's certain, the, the styles of tennis back in the day was a little bit, more serve and volley, some guys, more grinder, some guys. But today, you just everybody serves big, everybody grinds big with very little opportunistic volleys, and there's no real serve and volley tactics. So it's more like, let me, let me serve and volley because I'm up 5 1 40 love, you know, that kind <laughs> of thing. So it's, uh, it's a little different. But um, yeah, Mac was, he was an amazing talent. And, you know, Lendl came through, and uh, Connors was there, and uh, Borg was there. And then you got the younger cater coming in with uh, Boris Becker. and Mats Villander and Stefan Edberg. And then you get later on, you got Agassi and Sampras. And then I missed uh, Sampras by one day. I played, I played Agassi a bunch of times, um, beat him a few times, but uh, missed Sampras by a day and, you know, played a lot of guys. You know, I played even, I even played against Ken Rosewell in doubles one time in Sydney, Australia. And this guy was 44 years old. We almost, we almost lost to him. Um, amazing guy, amazing player. So yeah, I had a very, very interesting career. Very fortunate.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, you're playing a term in Chicago. You know, I'm, you know, trying to sort of make tennis more exciting in Chicago. It's a cold weather climate. People really don't know about the rich tennis history in Chicago. You beat one of the all-time great personalities in Chicago, Yannick Noah. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you all play the event? It was indoors. I thought it was it was called, I thought, was it called the Rosemont Arena or something? Oh, Rosemont, yes, Rosemont Horizon. Yeah, Rosemont Horizon, exactly. I think we played there. I may be wrong, but uh, I think we played there. But this is a really interesting story. So uh, first of all, my history with Yannick Noah is quite interesting because uh, in 1978 or 79, I think I, I got to go back in the archives and look, you know, my brain is a bit foggy, but I beat Yannick at the US Open 6-4 and a fifth. So here's a white South African playing a black guy from Cameroon, and we're both from Africa, and then, you know, apartheid South Africa. And, People made a big deal out of it. Yeah, we were just athletes. We were just out there freaking busting our ass. I got lucky. I beat him 6-4 and a fifth. So Yannick and I have been friends for a long time. I mean, we were sponsored by the same Lecoq Sportif company. I had a lot of French companies that I, that I was playing for, including Rosignol Rackets, Lecoq Sportif. Um, you know, lots of Peugeot was a sponsor for me, a car, car company. So I've had a long relationship with Yannick. He, he beat me a few times. I beat him a few times. And then uh, we got to Chicago. And, you know, it's a big tournament back then, like a Masters 1000, essentially, back then. And uh, Connors plays McEnroe in the finals. And Saturday night, Yannick Noah and I just decided to, you know, let's play a little doubles together. I've never played doubles with him before. Okay. So I said, Yannick, you want to play doubles? He says, yeah, sure, I'll play doubles. And uh, we, get to the, we get to the finals and we got to play Flax Sagusa, number one doubles team in the world. Right. Me and Yannick, I mean, you know, Yannick is a superb athlete and I'm pretty good. I jump around and I can volley like crazy and he's athletic as hell. Right. So we kind of gelled a little bit, you know, right. the first few matches were kind of rough. We beat a bunch of guys and then we got to the finals. But so Connors has to play McEnroe in the finals. And uh, I think Connors got the flu and he can't play at all. Completely in bed. He can't move. <laughs> and uh, so the tournament director is up in arms. He's got two and a half hours of television. You know, he's got a decent double setup, you know, with these four guys. So he comes up to he calls us. He says, guys, can I meet with you guys in the hotel? So he came and he says, listen, Connor's definitely ill. He can't move. McEnroe has a walkover. You know, I got two and a half hours of television. What do you guys think? Do you mind playing a five set final? And we said, sure, no, no problem. He says, yeah, I'll throw some extra money into something. Everybody got extra five grand or something. We said, hey, that's fine. That's great. So Yannick and, I, Yannick and I start playing. And I mean, Flax Agusa is right away in their, in their groove. And, you know, they're number one doubles team in the world at the time. They've won Wimbledon. They won US Open. Here comes Yannick Noah and I, like pickup partners, you know, like <laughs> Central Park, New York. And uh, we get smashed the first two sets. And suddenly... We started to play. And we ended up beating them in five sets. Mm. Exactly two and a half hours in doubles. 
the tournament director was so happy. It was an unbelievable match. I mean, we basically saved the tournament because it was, so, it was such fun. I mean, we were running into the stands and high-fiving people and Yannick <laughs> is diving and he's jumping like a, like a grasshopper over people and hitting overheads from the side. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was really fun. So I remember that vividly, that it was one of those sort of off-the-cuff moments in tennis that you didn't expect, and then it turns into something spectacular. Oh, man. Well, you know, it's funny you say you talk about saving the tournament, because when I think of, like, U.S. tennis, similar to sort of the question with South Africa, you know, you mentioned D.C., you mentioned Memphis, right? That event is gone. Chicago, that event is gone. Los Angeles had an event, right? Tampa, you know what I mean? Like, all of these events that were just such good, prominent stops on the tour and now are gone. What, what do you think we have to do? Because you talked about the European advantage, really. Once you go to Europe, you can train from, you know, you take a train to Austria, to Strasbourg, to Paris, to, you know, everywhere else you can just get around, right? And you can play right. every single week, good tennis, even their team tennis over there. A lot of people don't know, a lot of the French players play this team tennis and make money. Yeah, I um, played team tennis in Austria. It was fantastic. You know what I mean? With like full of pros. It's like, what, what do you think we have to do where we can create a pipeline now that you're sort of U.S. citizen now, right? Create a pipeline where the U.S. players can play every week, get around affordably, have tournaments stay multi-years instead of, you know, one-year deals, one-year leases on sanctions, right? Because that's why I think we see Italy now pop up with Center and Musetti and, you know, Berrettini, right? And Paris, same thing. I mean, or France, I mean, same thing. It's like we're... We're just losing at the lower level, whether it's the 80K, the 100K, the 125s, and travel and cost in America when we are the richest nation, right? And we yeah. should be able to make this work. Right. I think there's three things. I think the size of America is a, is a detriment in a way. It's big. You know, it's not Europe. Europe, you, you jump in Holland and you're in Belgium, <laughs> you're French, right? America, you drive eight hours in the car, you still haven't left Florida. I mean, <laughs> you know, so I think ge geographically, I think America is a little bit different. But secondly, I think the culture of sport in America is completely different from Europe. Tennis in Europe is probably top three. You know, soccer is number one, maybe cricket and some other things. Uh, but tennis is very high up on the totem pole for public to love tennis. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are tremendous uh, facilities in Europe, indoors and outdoors. And thirdly, I think that the way that television has, you know, wrapped its arms around the, the team sports in America, I don't think you can ever fight that. Mm. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, the team sports in Europe is basically soccer, you know. Mm -hmm. So the culture is very different in America. So, you know, you've got NASCAR, which is also a sport <laughs> if you have a lot of money. Um, you win, but uh, you know you got football, basketball, you got baseball, you got uh, ice hockey. I mean, tennis is seventh or eighth on the totem pole in America. So I don't know how you will uh, be able to entice. Uh, you know, tennis is a very expensive sport versus soccer or basketball. Right. So it's a cost factor, and uh, you know, um, it, it is sad to see tennis uh, go through its gyrations in America in some instances. But you know, obviously, college tennis is also impacted very heavily. A lot, of, a lot of programs dropped from colleges, D1, D2. A very unfortunate situation. But, yeah, I mean, um, I'm always a bit surprised that there's, there wasn't more 
team tennis in a sense like you've got these club tennis things but that's again it's a cultural thing you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um tennis has drastically changed over the last number of decades i mean when i lived in austria for instance when we go to the club even in that small town where i was living with my coach at his apartment uh, we would go to the tennis club and you would basically spend the whole weekend there i mean you eat there you, you play doubles in the morning you play singles whatever you're there all day right and today's marketplace it seems like uh, people go to the tennis club and they play and they they, they don't even shower there. They just go. They leave. Yeah. Yeah. They go, take yeah. a lesson, two hours, they're out. Yeah, they're gone. It's not a, it's not a destination per se like it was. Mm-hmm. And Europe's very different. Your club becomes a destination. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a, a gated, I'm not talking about gated community, fancy homes, fancy places, fancy clubs. Yeah, people will hang a little bit. But that's a completely different model. These are just, you know, people just join a club and it's for the public and you can just go. And it's a real destination. People have fun events and they, you know, I remember, you know, burning the witches for winter and, and Austria and you know, all these, you know, really cool, cool things during the seasons that you do at the club. And it was really a gathering point for, for the town and for people that are into tennis and, you know, everybody knows tennis and it's a big part of their culture, but tennis is not a massive cultural thing in America. It's a, it's an elite sport in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. But it is a truly a global sport. Um, I just would like to see the map of Africa become a little bit more cluttered with some yeah. real stuff. And uh, I think I'm on the path to get some done. Okay. So you've got two young ones that play now, ten and yes, twelve. <laughs> yeah. How is that experience? You know, I mean, I've you know I've tried to raise my daughter to play. Got five and seven year old boy. Trying to get them to love it. You know, they they want to go to the tennis club and play basketball. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to they can stroke it though. You know, they don't play that often. Well, the time they spend on the court is very sort of rigorous. So I mean yeah. they pick up the small racket in like perfect strokes. You know what I mean? So what's your experience like dealing with this new breed of tennis parent, right? Where their kid can do no wrong, <laughs> looking for every advantage, their kid, you know, the, yeah. the ball was was it was in. You know what I mean? When it was really out, uh, you know what I mean? It's just, it's rough. It, it, it's an experience. You know, I, I honestly, uh, you know, what, what gives me a little bit more of a roadmap before I got to this point is the fact that I've had my tennis academy business now for almost 18 years. Mm-hmm. So I've seen it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, nevertheless, it is very hard for a person like me who has been at that very high level to sit next to a tennis court and see the shenanigans going on. But it's not, it's not really uh, unique to America. I mean, it's, it's the same everywhere else. I mean, I hear the same stories in South Africa. I hear the same stories in England and the same with Tennis Australia. You know, it's, it's, uh, I guess it's just the, the, the nature of the beast, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I really instill in my kids a, a sense of fair play. And, you know, we try to be, I mean, I've been where I could have pulled my hair out and I could have punched somebody or, you know, it's just, just unbelievable. I mean, the cheating and stuff like that. But, you know, I, um, I just try and also, you know, know where we are. And it's these kids are 12 years old. They're not professional tennis players yet. And to chill and just to, you know, it's hard. It's hard because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hyper competitive. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I hate to see my kids hurt, but at the same time also, uh, they have to know that losing is going to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And only through losing do you actually learn more than when you win a lot. Mm-hmm. To win a lot in the 10s and 12s is almost a death wish. 
Yes. Very, very few of them come out of there and continue to win because the kids that are working super hard are tiny little tots and they work hard and they can take a punch and they got the toughness and the mental toughness and they fit and they're strong. They keep grinding. They keep fighting. Doesn't matter how many times they get knocked down, how many times they lose first round, how many times they lose in the finals. They could have tiebreakers and they lose all of them. Those are the ones that eventually make it. Yeah. You know, it's not the ones that consistently win all the time that get to be the top. Yeah. And uh, so it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a grind and it's very expensive. I mean, we, we, we spend a lot of time with our kids, uh, you know, even at my academy, they come and train quite a bit. Um, and, uh, you know, we try and expose them. It's a wonderful sport. And I, I just don't know exactly where it's going to end up, but it's a, it's a priority for us to, to give our, ch- our kids the, the most utmost of advice and support and uh, direction and guidance to, to do what they possibly could do. And, they both are pretty good. Well, one of, the, one of the things that I do like about junior tennis, and I think that, it, that the parents will look back, even through the chaos of being a tennis parent, when you look <laughs> back at how much time you were forced to spend with your kid. Oh, yeah. In the car, on the plane, sharing a hotel room, watching lessons, pick up balls. That, I think, is that one-on-one time, right? That kid feels that investment in it. And yep. I mean... That, I think, is one of the things that tennis does give that a team sport doesn't. You know, I mean, I, I, I get no, so much joy out of seeing fathers spending time with their daughters. Yeah. You know, pushing them to compete and, and letting them know that it's okay for a girl to compete and be mean and be nasty, right? You know what I mean? And, <laughs> you know, so like to, to attach themselves to result. I mean, I think that's one of the things that, that I remember uh, that I know your tennis experience was a little different, but you know, my parents didn't play tennis at all. My mother never saw me hit a tennis ball ever right. in my tennis career, right? Um, but I, I do, yeah, I'm sure you know, like being there for your kid, sharing a hotel room, being in the car, it's one is like a real treat and gives you a real chance in this day to actually shape your kid versus letting the, the iPad, the video game, the Instagram. Oh, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more with you. I think, uh, I think sport in general is the antithesis of these cell phones and these iPads. I mean, it is part of our, it's, that technology is part of our world now. You just can't get away from it. But I just see, I mean, kids sitting, you know, at a restaurant and nobody's talking to each other and they're all on their <laughs> cell phone. Right? So you see people at a, at, a, at a beautiful, the Louvre, you know, looking at paintings and it's like they're on their cell phone sitting on a bench, you know, it's just like a horrendous. <laughs> But it is part of uh, the, the new world that we are uh, in. And, uh, but yeah, I think sport is just extremely important for kids. I mean, and then tennis in particular is such a one-on-one self-reliance taught sport that makes you feel like you pull your hair out some days, you, you know, and then you, 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 the next week you win something or you win a match or you play somebody that you never beat before. Now you beat them and you feel that sense of satisfaction for your children and how they fought so hard you know, and now you've lost to a kid five, six times in a row, and now suddenly they start pushing them, and then they win. It's just such a great feeling to to see that sense of accomplishment because it really is a one-on-one sport. It's probably one of the greatest life lessons that you can learn for yourself to be tough and self-reliant. It's the, it's the sport of tennis. Yeah. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, man, I really appreciate your time. I know you're there with your kids at a tournament doing the tennis dad thing. Uh, yep. I'm, I'm sure you're sitting on your hands right during the match. Right? Just trying, <laughs> to stay, <laughs> trying to be trying to stay calm. Uh, but, you know, you're a legend in the game. Uh, and an ambassador for not only South Africa, but all of tennis. And, um, you know, your name is infamous, right? When you think about the tennis legends from South Africa, pioneers, and I want to thank you for coming on the show and wish you good luck. In any way I can participate in the quest to bring tennis back to South Africa and the continent in general, let me know. You know, my I, the reason why I actually started playing tennis was uh, my dad took my brother's basketball team to Senegal. No way. West Africa. Yeah. And we came back to the States July 27th. All the summer camps were full in my neighborhood, except for tennis camp. Because wow. no one in my neighborhood wanted to play tennis. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, low-income area. No one wanted to play tennis, right? Right. So my mom took me to the park. The instructor said it's $12 for the rest of the summer. And we have room. And she said, boy, get out the car. Yeah. So, you know, um, <laughs> Lots of my, my tennis career started because of that long trip to Africa with my parents uh, in the summer. So it's a uh, you know amazing, yeah, beautiful place. I, I love going there, and uh, you know I, I appreciate you, brother. Well, I tell you what, we're we're all uh, we are all just uh, crazy about this sport. Um, I've been playing tennis since I was four years old. I've never lost my want and desire to do it. Now coaching and seeing the fruits of my labor with kids and you know, putting kids in college even, and then kids that never played tennis before, or even a kid that was a volleyball champion, tries and picks up tennis, starts to love it so much, got a full right, right D1 for tennis and, and volleyball. I mean, you know, to hear those stories when you do that for kids over many years, I mean, it's just uh, parents thanking you every year, writing you a Christmas note saying, you know, she's doing so-and-so, she's now married, she still plays tennis, she's at the club. And, and just the, the game of tennis is such an influence on so many people and so many levels. Uh, it's not always just the, you know, it's, 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 it's the glamour of the, the Shangri-La story of winning Wimbledon and willing that's, you know, that's one thing. And it's in itself some amazingly accomplished uh, for many coaches, but uh, just to change lives and be, be able to, to affect people's lives. I mean, that's the, that's the big thing. So that's really the goal for us. And I think we have some fantastic people, like I said, from the highest level of our sport, as well as sponsors and others uh, that are iconic people in the world of uh, of, of so many business opportunities and so forth that want to see this happen for us. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, we are, we are getting going. And as soon as we, the dam will burst one of these days and everybody will know what we're doing. So it's going to yeah. be very exciting, very, very exciting. I mean, that's a whole continent. I mean, that's, it's not just one country. It's a whole continent that we want to awaken to tennis. I cannot be the only one that's ever won a grand slam twice. There should yeah. be many more Roger Federer's and Serena Williams is coming out of Africa. Yeah. That's for sure. Yannick Noah's, all of these guys and uh you know north africa is pretty much franco africa you know it's a bit more french yeah. so the french has a lot of influence there and you had tennis tournaments in, in, Tun in tunisia you got egypt you got morocco uh, there's some others but uh sub-saharan africa has been left in the dust so time for us to uh, step up and you know people like myself i'm very very keen to do that and uh, spend a lot of time in south africa as well my kids uh, can't wait for them to see where dad came from uh, look at a few lions and giraffes and elephants and, and yeah. have some fun with that as well. But uh, yeah, it's it's gonna be a it's gonna be a pretty amazing opportunity. 
Well, I can't let you go since we are Australian Open time. And that is, you know, your, your place, right? Two-time champion there. Well, who's your pick for the Australian Open? Well, I tell you what, uh, Djokovic looks awfully strong. You know, I think, you know, he has a bone to pick. He has a bone to pick. <laughs> he, has a, he, has and, a pick. Uh, he does. Ha he does have a bone to pick. And, uh, you know, the way they treated him was quite uh, disgusting, in my opinion. But that's life. You get over it, you move on, and you do your best you can. And I think he has a bone to pick, and he has a, he's something to prove. And I think, I think he's going to be definitely the greatest of all time because he's just one of those unique athletes that come along once in a lifetime. So I would pick Djokovic. Um, Schwantek is a bit of a, a bit of a blip right now. She's starting to be hauled in by some of the girls. And Pegula beat up two and two yesterday. I saw that match. And uh, two and two. Yeah, uh, yeah, two and two. I mean. Uh, Jessica, she practiced at uh, Whitfield, where I work with this uh, up-and-coming WTA player, and she practiced with this uh, with uh, Jessica Pagula and stuff. And Pagula looks good, you know. She played really well yesterday, so uh, she could be a very much a dark horse in the tournament. Um, so I would say uh, Schwantek probably will gain a little bit more uh, confidence and, and and go to her next gear. Uh, Pagula just played her and didn't let her play her own game yesterday. She was uh, Schwantek looked a little bit off, but uh, that's tennis, right? Um, but yeah, I saw Alcaraz got injured. He's not. He's not playing. Yeah. What did he do? I didn't see. I didn't. I don't know the details on the chat, but I, I saw the blip that came across the screen. I said, "Oh, opportunity." I mean, I thought he was probably the one person that physically yeah. could match Djokovic. Absolutely. Uh, but with him gone, you know, and Rafa sort of, you know, maybe not being a hundred percent. You know, Djokovic, he's definitely good. And the extra, I mean, Djokovic is a player that doesn't really need any extra motivation, but when no. he has it, I mean, you know. No, he's, the, he's, he's, he's the greatest of all time. He'll, he'll, he'll surpass everybody with grand steps. I mean, he's got another five years of tennis in him. Yeah. You can imagine he just wins one of those five. It's five already. I mean, he's at 25 grand slams. These other guys are at 121. <laughs> so, I mean, I would say he's probably going to be there, but. You know, other other great guys is uh, you know, Rude is always uh, knocking. I think uh, uh, Rune. Yeah, Rune Holger Rune. Yeah. Holger could be uh, uh, making a move. He's a strong guy. But I tell you what, I like this French guy that played Djokovic yesterday in Auckland. Halis, tall guy. He, yeah, yeah. He, Djokovic beat him seven six seven six, and I'm telling you, Djokovic had to play unbelievably good tennis. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it was a point here and a point there that made the difference. But this guy's good. He's got a monster serve. I mean, he was he was serving constantly 118, 119, 120 second serves. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he could be a dark horse in the tournament as well. But uh, I just love tennis. We have TVs on and it's just tennis everywhere. <laughs> Every day is just tennis. So, uh -huh. but I appreciate the time. I really do. And uh don't be a stranger. Let's uh, let's talk in the next couple of months and see where we are with Africa and, and see what we can do together. All right, brother. Well, this has been a Tennis.com podcast with the man, the myth, the legend, your high creek. <laughs> the myth is good. <laughs> <Like that. laughs> yeah, the grass court Australian Open, right? Yeah, that's fun. That was a Thank good time. You. Thank you for joining. You're welcome, buddy. All the best. Good luck with everything.